Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. I'm the youngest of seven kids, and all of them were smart, and I looked up to every one of them. And my mother and father said early on that we're going to send all of you to college. Uh, We'll struggle. We'll do what we have to do to get you to go to college because we want you to go to college because if you don't want to work on this farm, then education is the only way off the farm. Life's hard, but when you find your path in life, you'll find fulfillment. I'm Sam Coates, and welcome to the Driven By Podcast. On this show, I talk to people with purpose. And hearing these stories and conversations, my hope is that you'll see your path, which will bring out the best in you. Follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram, at Sam P. Coates, and learn more about my guests and subscribe to the show at drivenbypodcast.com. My guest this week is Otis Sanford. In 1975, Otis became the first male African-American reporter for the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi. His resume is long, so see the show notes for his full resume. But he served in Pittsburgh, Detroit, and then came back to Memphis, where he eventually became the managing editor of the Commercial Appeal. He has also served as the chairman of the Mid-America Press Institute, and he was president of the Associated Press Managing Editors Association. In 2011, he joined the University of Memphis Department of Journalism faculty, where he is the hardened chair of excellence in economic and managerial journalism. Otis currently writes a weekly column for the Daily Memphian. This episode is loaded with experiences, insights, and a deeper understanding of how journalism works. We talk when he fell in love with journalism, political machines, why he doesn't mind criticism, the funniest story he has covered, the politician who didn't take things personally, all the significant changes of journalism, and more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Otis Sanford. Hey, everybody. I'll just make this easy. Do you need insurance? Do you want another opinion about your insurance? Just go ahead and call Matt Haga with State Farm. It'll be easy. If you're thinking about it, just do it. We do have listeners to this show from all over the world, so this offers only for listeners in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Matt Haga State Farm offers auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance. Go to madhaga.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-A-A-G-A.com and contact them. When you contact Matt, tell him I sent you. Hey, everybody. I have one last quick cool company to tell you about. 
Are you like a majority of Americans who love the idea of working from home when you want to? If you do, then I bet you'll like to check out havenspaces.org. Havenspace lets you design the outdoor office of your dreams, but we make it easy and build and ship directly to you. Go to havenspaces.org. That's H-A-V-E-N-S-P-A-C-E-S dot org to learn more and see how to connect with us. Full disclosure, I do own this company, but I'm willing to put it out here on this podcast because I know it'll make your life better and they look pretty awesome too. Now we're going to get back to the show. Where did you go to undergraduate for university? I went to uh, Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi. All right. And, and I got my undergraduate degree there uh, in 1975 in journalism. Did you go to graduate school? I did not go to graduate school. So Jackson, the Clarion Ledger, that was your first assignment out of Ole Miss. Is that correct? Yes, that was my first professional job straight out of college. Uh, matter of fact, I got the job before I graduated, thankfully. And so I graduated on a Sunday. Uh, I think it was Mother's Day in 1975. And two weeks later, I was working in the newsroom of the Clarion Ledger in Jackson. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Mississippi on a farm, small town, Como, Mississippi. Okay. Which is about 50 miles straight south of Memphis on Interstate 55. And I grew up out in the country west of Como on a farm. My family had a farm out there. How many acres was your farm growing up? It was around 40 Around 40 acres, close to that, uh, maybe a little less. And we raised everything. Really? Oh, yeah. We raised beef. We had cows. We had uh, hogs. We had chickens. We had a vegetable garden. We had cotton. Uh, so I picked a lot of cotton in my time. Uh, that was actually a, a significant source of family income was the cotton that we raised and, and harvested and sold. We had the other grain like corn and things of that nature so we were a self-sustaining family farm because i had six brothers and sisters and two parents we had nine of us and we all worked on the farm uh, to sustain it that's the way we pretty much survived for the most part what about your parents were they from around the como area my father grew up uh, yes around como there senatobia really and my mother grew up in DeSoto County way back. They were born in 1910. That was back when, you know, especially in DeSoto County, South Haven didn't exist. Horn Lake was a little town. Olive Branch was a little town. But they grew up on farms, too, uh, one in Tate County and the other one in DeSoto County. So you worked the farm growing up? I did. Uh, I worked the farm, uh, did everything that you could do on a farm, especially with the fields, with cotton mostly and corn, and help with the cattle. Uh, I've milked a cow in my time. <laughs> <laughs> I could show you how to do that if you uh, wanted to know. <laughs> I've never done that. <laughs> Most people have not. <laughs> I have. Uh, and yeah, so I worked the farm, but I was never... Obviously, I wasn't that interested in farming. I just, I did it because it was what our family had. And I was always interested in eventually getting off the farm and, and doing something else. Did you know what that would be? I did fairly early on, believe it or not, Sam. My, my father, 
who only had a sixth grade education. He was a really smart guy, though. Uh, he had taught himself to be a carpenter. And so he worked as a carpenter while the rest of the family ran, uh, did the farm work. My mother pretty much supervised all of the farm work. But my father loved newspapers. Really? And he had the commercial appeal delivered every day except Sunday by the mail. The, the, mail, the mail carrier brought it every morning around 8 o'clock uh, in the mailbox. So, And my father... Uh, liked papers, but he was so busy with his work that he didn't really have time to read it. So he gave me the assignment, once I learned how to read, really, to read the paper and tell him what was in the paper. And I took that as a as my first real serious newspaper job, <laughs> really. And uh, and so I read it. You know, I started in the comics, and I went from comics to sports. And then I wound up in other sections of the paper and I would tell my father everything that would I, that I learned. And I told him more than he really wanted to know. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was probably a mistake on his part because uh, I bent his ear <laughs> and he was tolerant about it because he said, well, I asked you to do it. So I got to sit here and listen to everything you got to say. And I was like six, seven years old at that wow. time. And, uh, but I fell in love with newspapers just by doing that. And so somewhere around when I was 12 years old, we had a high school paper, um, the high school where I went to elementary school, but the high school was there too. They had a, uh, a student newspaper there, believe it or not, very poor community, all African-American student body, but they had a newspaper. And so I wrote a newspaper article about the elementary basketball team and they published it. And so that was my first newspaper article, and I fell in love with journalism with that. And so I knew I wanted to be a newspaper reporter at around 12 years old. Wow. Do you remember when you were first reading and, and telling these stories to your dad or telling the articles that, and summarizing those to him, what is it that drew you in or what is it that you read or felt that kind of got you hooked early on? Well, I was into sports, obviously, as most young guys in my day and even today, you know, sort of gravitate to sports. So I gravitated to sports. So what drew me in was reading about baseball. I became a really big baseball fan. And so I was reading about the St. Louis Cardinals and the Atlanta Braves. Actually, they were in Milwaukee, I think, when I first started reading it. I just read those stories and the people and, and I started listening to baseball games on radio. Uh, the Cardinals and the, the Braves, because I could get those uh, on my little transistor radio that I eventually got. And that's what drew me in. And then, you know, again, I gravitated to other sections of the paper and I would read about, uh, you know, what was going on, especially in, you know, Commercial Appeal at that time had a Mississippi edition and that's the edition we got. And so I would read about what was going on in Mississippi. And one time there was even a story about what was going on in Como. <laughs> I was shocked to see that. And uh, so it was, it was just the, the news about mostly faraway places and people, especially the sports figures that I eventually really uh, started to follow. I mean, I was a huge Hank Aaron fan. Yeah. And and it was just that. It's just reading about faraway places and imagining that I would be there one day. I know this industry is changing so much and it has been, but 
are there any changes that you can just that are just so clear in your head thinking about where we are today you know reading these when you were 12 all the way up through high school oh there are a ton of changes sam <laughs> i mean uh there are there are a ton of changes in in the delivery of the news and the content of the news and now that i have been in a newsroom there there are a ton of changes in how we produce the news but let's let's talk about the delivery first back then printed newspaper was the dominant way that people got their news and information. I mean, yeah, you had television and you had radio, but television only devoted, this was long before cable came, became a thing. Yeah. Starting out when I first started paying attention, you only had about 15 minutes of national news every day. It went to 30 and you only had about, you had 30 minutes of local news, um, mostly at six o'clock and at 10 o'clock at night, that was pretty much it. So the dominant way that people got their news was newspapers. And they told you everything that was going on. Newspapers back then were the official news of record. They told you everything. They told you all the births in town. They told you uh, every death in town, who was getting married, who was getting a divorce. <laughs> and just all of the latest news, even up till you know, especially if you lived in the city and you got the last edition of the paper, you you knew what was going on as late as midnight and it was in the paper the next day. None of that happens today with a printed newspaper. Printed newspapers today cannot be, uh, can't give you, it can't give you breaking news. They have cut back so much on the size of the paper, um, what we call the news hole, that uh, you don't get any of those features that I just mentioned. You don't get bursts in the paper anymore. You don't get the divorces. You don't get any of that kind of stuff. And the news is really, uh, most, of, most of the time, is two days old because the deadlines have been cut back so much. You know, you don't buy a printed newspaper to find out what's happening, what's breaking. All of that is done electronically through websites and, um, and, and mobile devices, social media. Those are the massive changes that I have seen where newspapers are concerned. And was that all this merely the shift? Because if people are predominantly getting their information one way, that means they're paying for the newspaper at that time in one way. So then the whole industry was able to shape and kind of mold their independent organization they have a lot of margin from a revenue and from a cash flow standpoint. And so what right. you're saying is as this is, as technology has continued to just make us globalize and as things have just been able to immediately get out and get exposure, it's just wrecked the traditional processes that gave traditional print the opportunity to, to really engage and to inform the reader and, all these constraints have just put on. So then it's just, to it's kind of been handcuffs around journalists themselves with traditional print. Is that a fair way of saying it? I think that's pretty fair. And uh, let me elaborate just a little bit on what you just said. The fact that the internet came along and hurt the advertising because it was the advertising that started to dry up first that impacted newspapers prior to the internet becoming a you know, a thing, which was when the you know, World Wide Web came along in 1991. 
And that gave advertisers a different way of getting their um, message out to consumers. Before that, they had to rely on television and radio and newspapers and radio, and they definitely relied on, on newspapers. And that's where the newspapers made a ton of money. And you talked about margins. Uh, newspapers had profit margins that were 30, 35%, sometimes 40%. That's unheard of as a profit margin. Right. I mean, by comparison, a uh, grocery store would be happy to get six and seven percent profit margins. Right. But for a newspaper to have thirty-five percent profit margins, that means <laughs> that's a, that's that that's my net income uh, was tremendous. And they so they could afford to do a whole lot of things. They could afford to have higher big staffs, especially in metro areas. They could afford to send people to cover anything and everything they wanted to. Uh, they could afford to expand and do all of that. But when the internet started to dry up that, that advertising income, especially classified advertising, that's where it started. It, uh, if you go back now and look at old newspapers, and I've done this several times for researching books that I've written. And when I look at old newspapers from the 60s, uh, especially on Sunday, there would be page after page after page after page of classified advertising. I mean, it would just be full. I mean, it was like 40 pages of classified ads. That was just pure money coming in the door. And all of that has pretty much gone away because the internet now takes care of that. Craigslist was one of the first to come along and take away the classified ads. Then the display ads started to dry up uh, because companies and businesses, including auto dealerships and big box department stores, no longer needed to do that much advertising in newspapers. They could do direct marketing. They could do it in other ways. And all of that is really what caused the downfall of the printed newspaper. Is there a statistic or is there data on how many people, how long the average person or people that would get the paper would actually read the paper each day? Because I would imagine it's, I mean, the way you're describing it, I was born in, you know, 1988, so mm -hmm. the internet was alive and well, you know, really when I got to a point in age when I wanted to, to read, but you're describing an experience, you're describing an activity, you're describing going to the one place to get all the information, and there was so much value, it sounds, just for the reader, but now with just the age that we live in and just how everything we read is through a screen for the most part, attention spans are so much shorter. So as a journalist themselves, I would imagine that's got to be frustrating if people are just skimming and scanning or they're, they're biased because of where they're getting their information from, whichever way the platform's going on trying to target, et cetera, to where it's almost like you have to work. You have to be educated or you have to be curious or you have to be disciplined and you have to work if you actually want to get into the good stuff. Is that, <laughs> is that a fair observation? And is that a frustration of a journalist coming up today or that somebody that's been around for this switch? Well, I think, uh, well, there, there's a lot in what you just said. Let me, let me just try to touch on a couple of, a uh, couple of, of what you just said in terms of the time that people spent with newspapers. I don't have any specific data on that. I, I do think it exists. And matter of fact, you just gave me an opportunity to go and research that. I could use that for my class. Oh, yeah. Um, but I do think, and I'm, this is anecdotal, I do think that from the time that I started looking at 
at newspapers, which was the very early 60s, up until the dawn of the internet and the World Wide Web. I would say the average newspaper reader, people who, who got the paper all the time, who liked newspapers, I think that they would spend an average of about 20 to 30 minutes a day uh, reading the paper. Uh, they'd get up in the morning and they'd have their cup of coffee. Uh, you have a lot of older people who still say that today, that I like to get my coffee and get the newspaper and um, I'll spend, and again, it depends on whether they had to get out of the house to go to work. Uh, but even if they had to go to work, they would still spend about 15, 20 minutes as they've got their coffee and, and toast or whatever they are doing. They would take 20 minutes at least to read the paper. And that goes back to something you said earlier about we are an instant society these days. We, we don't take the time to, to spend with a daily newspaper. We want to skim and so we can scam with our cell phones or our other electronic devices and think we know enough and, and, that, and then go on with our business and with our lives. Yes, sir. What are you teaching your students now as you've seen this transformation take place and it's been going on for several years and it, it just seems media is only getting stronger, the ways to control information and kind of understand and a person's individual preferences and adjust that through the things that they see or the things they get visibility to first, et cetera. I mean, and if you disagree or from feel free, <laughs> please, you know, interrupt me in general from a macro standpoint. So it only seems like things are going to continue to, you know, move in this direction and move very quickly. So with your students that want to be a journalist with your students that they, they have that same, that giddiness you've described your, your draw to it early on is you were giddy. You talked about when you came back from Detroit, I think, or Pittsburgh to Memphis, you felt that you were giddy just like you were when you got your first assignment. But mm -hmm. how are you teaching them to go about their career to approach it? Or what kind of foundations are you trying to encourage them to, to have as they're just coming into a society that's just changing so much and it's changing at such a fast pace? That's a great question, Sam. I primarily teach my students, the ones who, um, are interested in journalism. And I teach those who are and those who are not, because I teach a lot of different general educational classes too. I tell them that what we are going to teach you here on this campus is not how to be a newspaper journalist. We don't, we don't deal with that anymore. This is not about the printed newspaper. This is about the delivery of content in so many different ways. And you need to be able to master the delivery of content. That means you have to know multimedia skills. You have to know how to do audio and video. You have to be the basics. You have to, you have to do the basics, like be a good writer and a good storyteller, because it's really all about, to me, storytelling, no matter what, what mechanism you're using. And I'm not talking about, you don't have, I, I, when I say storytelling, I'm not talking about a long opus or, or even a book. You can be a good storyteller on social media. In, in 140 characters, you can tell a story. And so we teach them how to be multimedia, how to be storytellers, how to write concisely, uh, how to take compelling uh, a video and do audio, 
how to build an audience and how to be ready to compete in this electronic age, which is where journalism is done today. And I think we do a pretty good job of it on the campus. We have a lot of younger faculty members who are very much more adept at doing this than even I am. I'm old school, Hmm. Uh, but I understand what's needed here when it comes to delivery of, of the content. That's why, you know, I do work in all different fields. You know, I still write a traditional column, but I do television because you communicate a different way there. I do radio. You communicate a different way there. And, and so I have, I have picked up all of those even along the way since I started teaching. And because that's the way you're going to have to communicate going forward is use all the different forms of media to get the message out, uh, not that you're trying to um, influence or, or, well, you are. I mean, if you're depending on what, what, what you're doing. I'm an opinion journalist, so I do try to influence people. But the storytelling is the key here for young journalists. Be a good storyteller. Report the stories accurately, fairly, objectively, concisely, and credibly. And that's what we teach all the time. What are maybe one or two of your favorite books on storytelling and or how to learn about the art of it or who's someone that one of your heroes that you've learned from about how to really try to hone that skill? Hmm. When it comes to books, I look at and I favor those who are able to tell that specific story and how compelling that is. And I think that one of my favorites is Bob Woodward, uh, formerly of the Washington Post. He has the ability to get people to tell him almost anything. (laughs) I think they, they trust him or he has such great sources so that when he's writing about whatever he's writing about, you know, he likes to write about politics, which is the reason I like him because I'm a political guy. And the last book that he wrote was obviously on uh, former President Trump. And it was so insightful in terms of going behind the scenes. And so I like books that go in depth and tells me, you know, put me in the room when discussions are being had and decisions are being made and who said what to him. And I kind of uh, emulated that uh, in my writing. You know, I want to put people in the room and, and talk about the key moments when, when discussions were had or decisions were made or actions were taken that explains the whole uh, issue that you're talking about in the entire book. So I like, I like Bob Woodward. Uh, in terms of, you know, telling my students what to read, you know, we have basic textbooks, but I want them to read books that tell a great story that get into the minds of the people um, that the author is writing about so that you can get a deep insight as to who they are and how they got to be who they are. When you got to Jackson, what was that like? Well, first of all, it was exciting because it was my first newspaper job, real newspaper job. I'd worked as a summer clerk uh, here in Memphis when I was in college. Uh, So it was exciting just to have a regular reporting job. It was challenging uh, because, you know, the history of the Clarion Ledger was one of um, a very conservative newspaper. 
They supported uh, segregation back in the day. I was the first African-American male to ever be hired as really? a reporter mm-hmm, at that paper. I was I was the second black person ever, ever. <laughs> and the first black male. Why, why is that not on the Internet? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why. It, it, it may be there somewhere. No, I mean, I, I couldn't find it. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't. Well, first of all, I haven't talked that much about it, except when I talk to people. And I have, haven't made a big deal out of it. But yeah, in 1975, my classmate at Ole Miss, a woman by the name of Linda Buford, she was the first, uh, and she graduated in December of 74. So uh, in January of 75, she got hired as the very first African-American reporter ever at the Clarion Ledger. And then five months later, when I graduated, the editor, they had a younger editor. It was, it was a family-owned newspaper at that time, owned by the Hedeman family. And they had pretty much turned the newsroom over to a younger Hedeman. His name uh, is Ray Hedeman. And he decided to transform the newsroom. So he went out and hired a bunch of young journalists. He hired a lot of people from the University of Missouri. And they were young, aggressive, eager beavers who came in. And he decided, well, we need some black folks in this newsroom. And so he came up to Ole Miss and hired Linda. Uh, and then I heard about him uh, looking for somebody else. And so I applied and I interviewed with him and he offered me a, a job as well. So that's, that's how it happened. Again, it was, it was challenging, but it was, it was a good first job for me because I got to do a lot of different things. When you say challenging, are you talking about the work itself? Or are you talking about being the first African-American male to work for the Clarion Ledger? I think it, the work itself, because I was still a young green reporter. So I, ha- I had a lot to learn. Uh, I had a great editor who was patient with me. And I, what I had going for me was that I was uh, a, good, a pretty good writer. I've always been a pretty good writer. And so that's what I had in, in my favor. My first job was actually writing features for entertainment. And so I wrote a lot of entertainment features. I went to, I did uh, concert reviews and, and I even helped to lay out the uh, pages for the in little entertainment section that the paper had at that time. It wasn't much. So I got to do a lot of different things, but um, the challenging part, you know, just came in, you know, learning how to do this every single day, uh, make my deadlines and, and not make not make any mistakes. And then eventually I got to cover hard news. I covered the police department and I covered the local governments around Jackson. I even got to cover the 76 presidential election uh, between Jimmy Carter and um, Gerald Ford. I wow. got to cover some of that. And so I, it, it was a great experience for me, even though, yeah, there were only two black people in the whole newsroom. <laughs> Can you talk about maybe any any of your early work, or maybe this will apply to every decade throughout your career, but where something just, a writing was just not good. (laughs) So I was just curious if you had any funny stories about maybe anything early on where you you look back and you're like, golly, that was bad. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure that there were a lot of stories that I wrote that I could look back on now and say that it was bad. Uh, one, One that does come to mind at the Clarion Ledger 
I was assigned to write a story once when there was a lot of flooding that was going on in a certain part of town. It had been raining and uh, some places got flooded. And I was making some calls about that. And I talked to some people who said that there were some heavy flooding in a certain uh, subdivision uh, in Jackson. And I took the first person's word for it. Uh, and I reported it in, in the newspaper. What I should have done was uh, get up and go to that. I didn't go to the neighborhood. I took a person's word for it. And that was a mistake because once I put it in the paper that there was you know, heavy flooding and I think the community was called Riverwood or something like that. And people who lived in the in the in that area, while they had had some some flooding, it wasn't as bad as the way I described it. And they um, they called the newspaper the next day to complain. Uh, and so I, what I learned from that is that uh, you know you can't take one person's uh, word for it. You got to check out everything. And I should have jumped in my car and tried to go to that area and and. And, and talk to people. Uh, I didn't think I had time to do that because I was on deadline, but I should have taken the time to do that. So that, 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 that's one thing. I, I know if I look back on some of my stories, there are a lot of things I could have done better. But overall, uh, I'm pretty pleased with how, how I was able to write most of my stories because, uh, again, I considered myself a pretty decent writer and I could try to capture the moment pretty well. Did you have any routines? Because I imagine putting your work out into the world, but writing itself can just be hard. It might not be for you, but just if you, depending on all the things that are going on during a day or sitting down to write just seems hard. Uh, <laughs> and it might not be that way for you or for other professionals like yourself, but is there anything that you learned early on in your career that helped you maybe be disciplined at the work or mm. from a deadline standpoint where you saw maybe others that just struggled to really follow through with their obligations? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the biggest one was every story that I was working on, whether I was going to a local uh, school board meeting or, or county supervisors meeting, because I did a lot of that in Jackson. And then when I came to Memphis, uh, I eventually got assigned to the federal court. And so I covered a lot of federal court trials and I would be there all day doing that. The thing that I learned to do was as the hearing or the meeting or the event was going on, I was formulating in my mind what I was going to lead the story with. Because I think the lead, the beginning paragraph of every story, I think is the most important thing that you do. Because it's the first thing that people will see. And most of the time, they don't even get past that lead paragraph. So the lead paragraph is gold in my mind. And so I would always be thinking as I'm going along, especially when I was covering a trial, when somebody says something that was, I thought was the most important thing of, of the whole day, I would say, that's my lead. And I would make stars around the notes that I took around that to say, I'm, I'm formulating my lead in my head as I'm going along here. That was always effective for me. And, you know, there were some journalists who would write the middle of a story and then go back and try to write the lead. I never could do that. 
And I never wanted to do that. I've read some of your work. This was a few years ago, but just I think it was a, a judge here in Memphis and, and some other national uh, representatives, but on some cognitive bias training and work that was being done in the city. And mm-hmm. I read some some of the stuff that you wrote about President Trump's administration, how they cut funding out for cognitive bias training, et cetera. Right. So I, I read a, a few different pieces on your work on that. So then therefore, my point is, is I feel like cognitive bias is it's something that you think about. It's something you advocate for, et cetera. So when you go in and your, your soul, your mind sees a story, sees the peace or the celebration with President Obama's inauguration. So then you write your story with that theme and then everything else in the article comes in to support the celebration of his inauguration What's that been like throughout your career to then also try to get detached to make sure that that theme, that story is in line with data? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think I I see where you're going. And the way I can answer that, Sam, is to say, you know, as a columnist, as an opinion journalist, uh, I don't have to be detached. I don't have to worry about that because I'm giving my point of view on what I'm writing about. Back when I was a a regular reporter, covering the news, covering the events, covering a trial, or covering a a speech by a politician, or covering a train wreck, or whatever it was, I covered tornadoes in my time. That's where I tried to get a little detached because I just wanted to report the major things that were happening. I'd go to the scene and I would I would try to describe what was going on and interview people and get their points of view, not mine, uh, and try to get both sides. If it was a conflict going on, I made sure that I got all sides of the conflict and reported those fairly and accurately. It was easy to detach as a straight news reporter because you, your job is to report what happened and try to bring some context to it. If there's some background that you need to go get, go get that background uh, and talk to as many people as you can. If there's, again, if there's conflict there, make sure you represent both sides. That's one thing. But when I'm dealing with opinion journalism, then I am very much attached because this represents my feelings about what's going on. Now, in both instances, you have to include data, and including the data, the way you, you're explaining it here, is just doing some reporting. You know, report facts, because facts will back up what you're saying, whether you're a straight news reporter, objective reporter, or whether you are a columnist. It all, you have to provide facts. You have to provide uh, some context, some historical references to back up what you're saying. So. But again, there are two different ways to do that. But in both ways, you need to provide the data. You need to do some reporting. You, in some cases, if you need to interview somebody, then interview somebody or more than some one somebody to, to get what you want to have in that story done. Yes, sir. So, and I totally get it. I understand the shift between, you know, when you were editor of the Commercial Appeal, I would imagine there's certain things that you can't write about or you can't say the way you can now. And so as the roles change, so does the the freedom to let your personal 
identity convictions and beliefs come out through your work. That's right. I get the difference between those two. But I guess maybe an example of what you're saying here. I read a piece that you wrote, forget the lady's name, but uh, she was sentenced life when Governor Haslam uh, was in office. Mm-hmm. You know, she was given parole. And you were talking about reform and you were using right. the example of Governor Haslam uh, that he did not play partisan politics with that decision. He he followed um, his heart with that decision, but you painted the story of what can happen if a politician does not play partisan politics and he follows his own conscience. But then obviously that aligns with, I would assume, your desires of criminal justice reform. But that his act and her story was kind of the main thing. And then if I'm understanding you correctly, data and everything else fell up underneath that. Am I processing that correctly? Yes, you are. And I know the story that you're talking about. This was a young woman. Um, I want to say her name was Centoria. I can't remember her full name. Uh, but yes, she had been um, in prison. She was a teenager. Uh, and she was um, with a man who was uh, taking advantage of her, sexually abusing her. And I think she wound up killing the man. And she wound up getting a, a life sentence as a result of that. And she served several years in prison. She was a model prisoner and she was applying for uh, either a commuted sentence or something along that nature. And Governor Haslam heard about her story and he did. He followed his conscience on that and he did not let politics get in the way. Uh, and that's one thing I've always liked about Governor Haslam. Uh, that he 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 did not let partisan politics get in the way of doing what was right. And I did use that example to talk about criminal justice reform and how politics always seems to get in the way of situations like that. Uh, people don't want to be courageous politically. And that has driven a wedge between conservative politicians and liberal politicians and and Republicans and Democrats and even blacks and whites. And to me, it was unnecessary. I mean, let's look at the cases and decide those cases on their own merit and not let politics get in the way. So yes, that uh, I did use that specific case to make my broader point. And I do that quite often in my columns. I will take a specific situation and then use it to make a broader point about what, I'm, what I believe in, what I think is right. Uh, I think that's just the way most good columnists do. I mean, that, that that's how you you get people to either agree or disagree with you. And a lot of times people disagree with me or the ones who certainly uh, post online are my critics more than my uh, supporters. But that's okay. As long as you're reading, I'm fine with it. Really? Have you always felt that way? Oh, yeah, it certainly is. I mean, uh, again, you know, I, nobody likes to be criticized all the time, but... Uh, I, I, I learned a long time ago that uh, if I was going to do this kind uh, of work, matter of fact, the, when I became the editorial page editor and started my column at Commercial Appeal, the first one I wrote, I said, you know, I'm willing to put my neck on the chopping block here. That's the um, word. That's the phrase I use, because if I'm going to criticize and, and I will criticize from time to time, I have to be able to take the criticism. And so, yes, I, I have no qualms about people who, 
people have called me names. They have uh, called me some really derogatory names in the past and think that I'm just this liberal hack. And, you know, I've, I've had it all. But most of those folks are the ones who read me every week. And so as long as you're reading, then I don't care. I don't care what you say. You have your opinion. I've got mine. So, you know, as long as you don't try to do anything to me, <laughs> yeah, then we're good. I mean, did you get criticized in Jackson? No, because I, I, you know, I wasn't writing opinion. I was just writing straight news. And again, the only time I got criticized in Jackson is when I said somebody's a subdivision was flooding and it, and it really wasn't flooding that much. Uh, so I got criticized for that. And uh, I remember another major mistake I made in Jackson. And this was just a, a rookie mistake. I was covering police. There had been an embezzlement at a bank and I was covering the police department. I was in the police information offices. Uh, I was in, in his office and he had the police report on his desk and I was trying to read the report upside down and without his knowledge because he didn't want to tell me how much money was, uh, was embezzled. And I was trying to read it and I got the number wrong. And, and I reported a massive embezzlement when it really wasn't as big as it was that I said. That was the, probably the biggest mistake I ever made. That was in Jackson. It was in Jackson. Uh, it's over 40-some years ago now. But it made such an impression on me that I never forgot it. And I always tell my students, uh, it's okay. I mean, you're going to make mistakes, but you never make the same mistake twice. And so I learned from that mistake is that you got to verify, you got to check things out, you cannot assume, and don't try to read upside down if you're not good at it. <laughs> and I was not good at it. And it was an embarrassing mistake for me and the paper. You know, it could have it cost me a career. Um, but it didn't. I mean, I recovered from it, but I always remembered you can't make that kind of mistake. You can't assume that you think you know something when you don't. And it didn't cost you your career because the way the editor handled it? Yeah, the way the editor handled it, obviously, you know, the the fact is there had been an embezzlement. So that, that part was true. I just had the number wrong, but it was an embarrassingly high number. But yeah, the way the editor handled it, he knew that I was a fairly young reporter. And so he just, you know, he, he had a little mercy on me and said that uh, just make sure that you don't do this again. And I have, and I never did it again. He sounds pretty level-headed. Yeah, well, he was a good teacher. And I, I've been fortunate throughout my career to have good mentors along the way, people who helped me and guided my career. And that's why I'm happy to be a teacher now because I can try to help younger people do the same thing, guide their career and teach them how to navigate and how to be the best reporter they can be. Hey everybody, we're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card. 
that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. When you think about Jackson, when you think about Memphis, and when you think about Pittsburgh, and when you think about Detroit, are there three or four things that you just, wherever you've lived or wherever you've done your work, you've just noticed things. It doesn't matter where you go in the United States. These are the things you're going to have to navigate. Can you speak about any common denominators through your work in different cities and especially three of those four being larger metro areas? Oh, yeah. I mean, I could, I could, I think the common denominator in all of those places for me as an African-American male journalist has been how people view race through their own lens. All four of those cities had a, or has a fairly good racial diversity about it. Jackson certainly did, Memphis certainly does, Pittsburgh a little less so, but there's, it was in Pittsburgh, and of course Detroit, which is, you know, 70-some percent African-American. So race always came up there. And so, I, yeah, I think the common denominator in all of that was how people view race through their own lens, how they viewed me as a African-American, either reporter or editor, and because there's not a lot of journalists who look like me, they're more now, obviously, than they were when I first started, obviously. One out of 10, two out of 10 African-American male reporter? You mean now or back then? Back then. Uh, I was the first I was the first one declaring Ledger, and, and it was very rare back then. I, I think in 75, if, if you look at percentages, it was less than 1% of all reporters were African-American back then. As a matter of fact, in 1975 was the very first year that a group of, a small group of African-American journalists around the country started their own association called the National Association of Black Journalists. Uh, And that organization started with only about 10 or 15 black journalists. That's pretty much a whole that that they had back then in big cities uh, in the country. And and that organization has grown tremendously in, you know, thousands of them uh, later on. But, but again, to your, your original question, you know, the common denominator to me was always a race. But, but the other common denominator beyond that was just how influential the newspapers were in those cities that I worked for. Jackson's Clarion Ledger, again, at a time when you didn't have much, you didn't have any social media, you didn't have any internet, the newspaper was dominant. The commercial appeal has always been dominant the most dominant media in this community. Same thing in Pittsburgh. I worked for a large, large afternoon newspaper there. had a Sunday circulation of 500,000 back then. And then in Detroit, uh, which is the largest paper I ever worked for, it was the Detroit Free Press, and it was was a wonderful place to work, very influential. So I've been fortunate to work at papers that were really – influential in the community. Very, very, very influential. And when you say influential, 
What do you mean? I mean that uh, whatever the paper reported on, uh, people paid attention to. It had strong readership. The editorial pages were strong so that when they said something needed to be done or somebody needed to be held accountable, most of the time they were. The politicians respected it, even though sometimes they didn't like it, but they had to uh, respond to it or, or make changes. The investigative journalism that went on at these newspapers always were effective in, in forging change. You know, they were Pulitzer Prize winning newspapers. Uh, all four places have won Pulitzer Prizes in the past. So, uh, yeah, it was, the influence I'm talking about is people paid attention to it especially in, in, in investigations and public service reporting, it really affected change. People, the politicians made changes. The legislature read the articles and said, we need to have a law to make sure this doesn't happen again and things of that nature. Throughout your career, if you had to think of one politician that you've personally written about or been in a, in a metro area who, where they held an office or in a state where they held an office, Who's the person that comes to mind that you felt received constructive criticism from the press the best and that was the most courteous, even when potentially criticized? Wow, the most courteous. Mm. Maybe not courteous, but respectful, professional. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow, that's a tough one because I'm not sure that the ones that I'm thinking about were all that <laughs> were all that courteous. They they sort of sometimes they took it, they took umbrage to it. I would have to say, honestly, it would be Governor Haslam. Of all of the politicians that I've had some interaction with uh, over the years, in terms, because I've, you know, I was, I've been critical of him, not a lot, but I've been somewhat critical of him on some things, but he never took it personally. He was always courteous. We wound up actually being pretty good friends. Actually, when he was first running for governor, there was one person who was running uh, from Memphis, uh, Bill Gibbons was thinking about running for governor, uh, but he dropped out of the race because he didn't have the money and didn't think he could do it. I wrote a column that said, now that Bill Gibbons was out of the race, there's nobody in this race who cares anything about what goes on in Memphis and Shelby County. All of the major candidates were from East Tennessee or Middle Tennessee, and they don't have Memphis as part of their agenda. Well, Governor Haslam, he was the mayor of Knoxville at that time. He reached out to me. Really? And he says, uh, yeah. And he says, uh, Otis, uh, I read your column and um, I'm going to be in Memphis tomorrow. Uh, I'd like to meet you at Huey's uh, <laughs> and, and share a burger with you. <laughs> and I said, sure, I'd love to. And so we met at Huey's downtown. Uh, his wife was with him and his wife is from Memphis. Yeah. And her name is Chrissy. And we sat there for a little over an hour. And he said, uh, I wanted to do this because I want to assure you that if I'm elected governor, I am not going to ignore Memphis and Shelby County. If for no other reason, my wife won't let me ignore <laughs> Memphis and Shelby County because she grew up here. But I read your column. It was, a, it, was a, it was a good column. It was critical. I didn't take offense to it, but I wanted to assure you that your thoughts about of whether anybody, whether whether I can't speak for the other candidates, but I can speak for me, that uh, if I'm elected, 
I won't ignore Memphis. And he didn't. He got elected. And he and I wrote a follow-up column after he had been in office about five or six months. I had tallied up the number of times he had been in Memphis uh, and promoting things in Memphis in just that five or six months. And he had been here more than the previous governor for a whole year. Well, And so I wrote a column about that and saying and recounted the fact that we had had the 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 burgers at Huey's and what he told me. And I said that, yeah, you are you are following your word. And so I, I would say that Governor Haslam would be the one that uh, never took the criticism personally and, and was very professional about it. But I've written about a lot of politicians over the years, including, you know, I, the, the, the main politician I wrote about was actually in my book was Boss Crump, who was in charge of Memphis for 50 years. And, and he got a lot of criticism from editors and reporters over the years, and but he didn't take it all that well. He, he shot back pretty fiercely. Have you looked up to or respected Edward Meeman's work? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, Edmund Meeman uh, came to Memphis from East Tennessee to run the press center, and he was one of those who was very critical of Boss Crump. And to the point where Boss Crump shot back at him and attacked him personally, and even had people at City Hall, including the mayor, but the Boss Crump wasn't the mayor, but Boss Crump was the boss, and he was the boss of the mayor. And he even had the mayor to criticize Ed Meeman. Uh, but Ed was steadfast in what he thought should be done editorially at the press center, and he didn't like the machine politics that uh, Boss Crump was known for. Uh, so, yes, Ed Meeman was very courageous and um, and was a great editor. When you say machine politics, how did that play out then and how does it play out today? How it played out then was that uh, Boss Crump pretty much controlled everything that went on in this town. He first got elected mayor in 1909 and then got reelected, but he had, he had a, such a powerful organization in terms of the police department, the fire department, community groups, clubs, organizations, they all were very supportive of him. And he attracted the African-American vote uh, back then, which was amazing that he was able to get that. And with all of that as a supportive base, he was able to do anything and everything he wanted to do. And that constituted a machine, a political machine, because he had the votes uh, to do anything he wanted to do, including uh, Impact, who became governor of the state of Tennessee because he had so many votes here in, in, in Memphis and Shelby County. How it worked later on, Harold Ford uh, was elected congressman here in 1974, and, and he established his own political machine, an organization that was built around uh, constituent services. The Ford family uh, had a funeral home that... Um, so he, he had connections with black ministers and, you know, everybody knew somebody who had been buried by the Ford funeral home. And so they used that politically to get support. And so he built his own machine, very organized, get out the vote, especially in the African-American community. It, it was highly effective in getting the vote. And we don't have a machine, a political machine anymore. 
the Ford family had the last political machine. So it doesn't really exist anymore now. I don't, and I'm glad it doesn't. We don't necessarily need one person controlling politics to that degree anymore. And we don't. Would you argue good and courageous journalism prevents machines from gaining traction? Yes, I would argue that. And that's not to say that a good politician who is supported by the community, someone who cares more about public service than self-service, uh, I'm, not, I'm not against that person. But if you're running a machine that only cares about you and your family uh, at the expense of everybody else, that's not good for the community. And it's up to the media, it's up to journalism to keep a watch on that and expose that and make comment about that as not being healthy for the community. And so I'm curious, I was found it interesting how you talked about Governor Haslam, but like when he sat down, did he just ride out from the gate, say, hey, I read your article and I hear you, I felt like it was critical, but, you know, this is what I plan to do. And did y'all just have a fun conversation, I guess? So is he just very matter of fact and addresses the criticism, addresses whatever's written, but then he's able to not take it personally so then he can keep it professional and still kind of be interested in the humanity of another person. Is that the way he did business? Well, that's exactly the way he did it with me, with that. That's a, the way you just described it is, exact, is exactly what happened. Again, he called me first at the paper, and, and I knew then that he had read the article. But he just said, you know, I'm going to be in town. I would love to have uh, lunch with you. And uh, they got a place downtown named Hughes. Can you meet me there? And I said, absolutely. And so we did. And that's exactly what he said. You know, he read the article. Um, he, he thought it was, it, was a, it was a strong article. It was critical of everybody else in the race because none of us are from West Tennessee. And, and we, are, we need to learn a little bit more about West Tennessee. But I can assure you that I care about Memphis and I will care about it. So that's exactly the way he did it. He kept it professional. And again, I think it was the best icebreaker I had ever had with an elected official. And again, our relationship only grew from there. And that's not to say that I never wrote anything else that was, uh, that was not critical. I was critical of him from time to time on some things, but um, we forged a relationship from that day. And so every time I would see him, whether it was at the paper or when I left the paper and came to the university, uh, I would see him in Nashville at the Tennessee Press Association meetings because I would go there every year representing the university. And he would be the luncheon speaker and we would, we would meet, we would shake hands and talk to each other. And sometimes he'd get up and as he's making his speech, he would make a reference about me. <laughs> he was, so he would say something about me. He did read my book uh, and, um, and made a comment about the book in a speech to the Tennessee Press Association one time about how it was, it's probably the best uh, uh, history lesson about, West Tennessee politics that he'd ever read. So again, for somebody who is a, an opinion journalist and for somebody who is a politician, our relationship is kind of uncanny in that we are friends, but we know that, you know, he has a job to do. I have a job to do and we're going to keep it professional at all times. And so I guess within human nature where things don't go that route is where 
whoever takes it personal or whoever through either manipulation, building a machine, fear and control, you know, trying to take advantage of things, et cetera. Whenever there's agendas and things like that, you feel like that's where somebody cannot act like Governor Haslam did in these instances where you can't keep it professional and you can't still value and esteem the human dignity that we all have. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that would be correct. I think the mark of a good political leader is one who can accept criticism and not take it personally. And some people can, others can't. Uh, others have really thin skin. And so they, they take offense if you criticize them. Um, but he's not one of them. Uh, he certainly has shown to me that he's not one of them. But I've had others who took offense <laughs> and, and tried to shoot back and did shoot back. What's it like writing about a candidate or writing about a someone in office, et cetera? Is it ever challenging from a standpoint of empathy or humanity to where, you know, you're writing about an issue or you're writing about something this person said or something this person said and they didn't follow through with that way? Or you can take that to, you know, more significant or controversial matter, et cetera. What's it like sitting down to write a piece like that? Does it ever feel uncomfortable from <laughs> just the the feelings and emotion of what it's like being a human being? Well, yeah. I don't enjoy a, attacking people, and I don't really consider it to be attacks because I, I try not to be personal with anything that I'm saying. And any criticism that I'm leveling is about policy uh, or it's about issues. I'm not leveling any personal attacks. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I have to think about how, how it might be received. But again, people who run for public office put themselves out there for that. Uh, nobody twists anybody's arm to run for a public office. So when you run for mayor, when you run for county commission, when you run for city council, when you run for governor, state legislature, or even school board, you are running to, to get the public's trust. And when you have the public's trust, that means you have to do things that are in the public's interest. And when you don't, or when I, you know, again, I'm an opinion journalist, so when I don't think you are doing that, it's my job to, to call you out on it. I'll give you a quick, quick example. I wrote a column last week, uh, or this week, that was highly critical of the current governor, Bill Lee, in which I, he gave his State of the State address last Monday. And while, you know, it was, it was full of, you know, political talking points on his part, I thought that he was way out of bounds to include something in his speech about the November presidential election being an unfair election against Donald Trump. And while he never mentioned Donald Trump by name, it was clear that what he was saying was that I hear all of those who don't think that this election was fair, and that it was stolen, um, that's in an essence what he was saying there. And I thought it was pandering to Donald Trump supporters. It was totally out of place for a state of the state address about Tennessee and where we're going this year, trying to fight the virus, trying to deal with healthcare and dealing with all the other issues that we got to deal with. Why are you bringing up something that happened that everybody has said uh, President Biden won fair and square? 
And the only reason you're doing it is because you're trying to pander to a base. And so I was very critical of him for doing that. Well, I got attacked um, by Trump supporters for saying that. So, But that's just part of the job. Here locally and across the state? Mostly local, mostly local. Emails and, and you know, posts the, at the bottom of the column uh, on the Daily Memphian website. Yeah. But I also got some people who agreed with me. People uh, sent me emails. The publisher of the Daily Memphian agreed with me. <laughs> so he liked the column. So if he liked it, I don't care what anybody else yeah. thinks. So you read all the comments. Oh, yes, I read them. I read them all. I feel like you're the first person I've talked to that reads all their comments. I mean, most people have, maybe journalists do that. I don't know, but it seems like most people just intentionally don't read them because it's depressing reading uh, a bunch of people just blast you. Well, like I said earlier, I, I don't mind the criticism and I welcome the criticism because I'll read the comments just to see, may, well, maybe somebody may have a point. Maybe I did miss something here. So I do read them. Uh, I want to know what people are saying. I don't respond to them unless they send me a specific email to my email address. Now, I respond to all of those um, because I want to be responsive to my readers. But for people who just putting a comment on the newspaper's website, I don't respond to those. Curious. I read a brief excerpt. Or I read something you wrote and I pulled an excerpt, but that politics and social justice is embedded in your DNA. And I've also I read where you said that state of Mississippi has a shameful past from a racial standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that you were from Coma, Mississippi. I did not know that you went to Ole Miss. I did not see that information when I was researching you and your career and all the different places that you've been. Can you talk any about experiences early on, either growing up in Como on, on your family's farm or going to the University of Mississippi or working in Jackson at the Clarion Ledger? Can you talk about any experiences that may have just enforced that statement about sure. politics, social justice in your DNA, and then where <laughs> you're at this stage of your career where you only write, you know, in addition to your work at the University of Memphis, opinion pieces? Mm -hmm. It just seems that, that that's been with you this entire time. Can you talk about that? Sure, I can. I grew up as a child of segregation, first of all. Having been born in 1953, I, I came of age doing racial segregation in Mississippi. And Mississippi was one of the worst states for uh, racial oppression of all the 50 states. I was... Um, discriminated against. I remember, and I'm using the terms from that time, but I remember white and colored water fountains. I remember the even the little health clinic uh, that was there in Como for people to go when they were sick. Black people had to go through the back door and white people came through the front door. I went to a segregated school for every year of my schooling, except for my senior year. And even then, that was 1970, my senior year in high school, 70, 71. That was the first year of real integration uh, in Mississippi and certainly in Panola County. And I remember having, being picked as one of four students, two black, two white, to stand up and give a speech to the community black parents and white parents to try to calm their fears, mostly the white parents, 
to calm their fears about it's going to be all right for black kids and white kids to go to school together. I did it. I thought it was foolish, but I did it. How old were you then? I was 17. Okay. Um, 19. Yeah, I was 17. And so, yes, having lived through that and, 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 and seeing the things that happened, you know, I was, I was 13 years old when um, three civil rights workers were murdered down in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and really nobody ever did anything about it. So, yes, I mean, uh, I grew up in all of that. And that's how I became a, uh, a product or, or how social justice became part of my DNA because I saw injustice uh, for much of my early life. I went to a community college first before I went to Ole Miss because it was right up the road from where I lived and I, you know, I could use my mother's car to get there and get back. And, but they had a, it was a pretty good little uh, community college, Northwest Community College. And it had a weekly newspaper that I heard about and I wanted to work for the newspaper. And I did. I was, as a freshman, I was a sports writer and I covered other things for the paper. And then when I was a sophomore, I was the candidate to be the editor of the paper. But I was not chosen to be the editor, even though I had the best grades of anybody who qualified to be the editor. But I was told that Northwest wasn't quite ready for a black person to be editor of the paper. This is when you were a sophomore? This was when I was a sophomore, yeah. And I was, you know, I was hurt by that, um, but I didn't let it stop me. And I went on to, I still worked for the paper and wound up getting a scholarship to go to Ole Miss in journalism. And that's why I went to Ole Miss because I got a scholarship for it. And then the rest of it, I, you know, I, I did it. I made it on my own from that. But growing up, in Mississippi and experiencing all the things that I saw with racial segregation and, and discrimination, that is why I made that statement about social justice being part of my DNA. What were your parents like when you were 17 and had to give that speech or your sophomore year when you didn't get to be editor of the newspaper of Northwest Community College? Did they say anything? Were they helpful were they silent they were helpful they they were helpful they were they were consoling they said don't you know don't worry about that you know I, I we know that you're a smart kid and and this if this is what you really want to do well, they didn't know me anything about journalism but if they said if this is what you want to do then we'll help you to do it so and they did they supported me every step of the way and when i had to make that speech in high school you know my my parents were politically active in the community uh, and they were supportive of the integration of the schools. My mother was had been a former school teacher and was active in the PTA, Parents Teachers Association. And so she was active in the schools. And she said, well, if anybody has to give the speech, you need to give it. And so they were very supportive of all of that. So, no, I, I had great supportive parents who understood the times that we were living in they saw something in me because they knew that I was, I had been a writer since I was a kid. They knew that. And when I told them I wanted to major in journalism, 
they said, well, fine. We thought you were going to major in industrial arts and and mm-hmm. and and go out and build things like your father did. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. That's too much hard work. I want to be a writer. And they said, well, if that's what you want to be, then we'll support you. How did you obtain that self-confidence to not let those things stop you or just cause you to quit or to give up? I mean, for me personally, I haven't experienced anything like you described in that just from me being white. And I I mean, I was born in East Memphis, but the struggle with shame that I felt, it's mostly been around money and some things that I navigated in high school and after high school, just, just some situations where you must feel less than. And then also from an academic standpoint, I made terrible grades and uh, I went went to like, you know, I went to a really nice high school here in Memphis and I didn't like school. I didn't, I didn't like being told what to learn. Uh, I didn't like (laughs) just memorizing it just for the Scantron sheet. Yeah. Yeah. And also am ADD and have a lot of energy. So I learn a lot. I read a lot now, but it's things I care about. But so the shame that I felt was more from a, a, from a standpoint of, academic insecurity, financial insecurity, and other kind of traumatic things that human beings, we can experience that develop that. But I would imagine that had to be humiliating to some degree to be asked to give that speech. I mean, it was honoring, but it was also, why why are we here? Why is this necessary? Mm -hmm. Why Why is this the way it is? And to be up there in front of everybody. But my point is, it just seems like it developed more fortitude uh, or more strength the way you described it and then how you continued on at the university of Mississippi and then go into the Clarion ledger. So how did it strengthen you versus just make you want to give up? My family. I'm the youngest of seven kids and all of them were smart. And I looked up to every one of them. And my mother and father said early on that um, we're going to send all of you to college. Uh, we'll struggle. We'll do what we have to do to get you to go to college because we want you to go to college. Because if you don't want to work on this farm, then education is the only way off the farm. And so that, and that's what we did. The cotton that I mentioned to you earlier, the cotton paid for my older brothers and sisters to go to college because it didn't cost as much back then. But from 1960, when the first two of my brothers and sisters went to college, until I graduated in 1975, there was always at least one or two of my family, of my of those siblings in college. And so it was my family that said, no, you're not going to give up or you're not going to get discouraged or look what happened to us. They discriminated against you. And they were, they were upset and in some ways humiliated by the things that they saw. Most of them couldn't even go to an integrated college. Uh, So they went to all black schools. And so it was my family that said, no, you're not going to give up here. You're smart. My older brothers and sisters were smart. And so I I wasn't going to be the one to, to not do what they were doing. They all went to college and they all graduated from college. I'm certainly going to do the same thing. And so that was what kept me going was the fact that I wasn't going to let this discrimination or the um, fact that I couldn't be editor of the community college newspaper 
stopped me from doing what I really wanted to do. So family is that important. Family was, it is that important. It should be that important for everybody. And it certainly was that important for me. And if it wasn't for my family, I wouldn't have made it. Uh, you know, my mother and father who was so committed to getting their kids to be successful. And all again, all of us went to college and all of us graduated from college and all of us got great jobs. As I'm the only journalist in the, in the group, but you know, they uh, had school teachers and they, you know, uh, an executive who worked for uh, the Chicago Transit Authority and bookkeepers and home economists. And, you know, that's my family. So it doesn't matter what's going on outside or around, but if the family stays tight and your parents, the parent, the parental figures keep telling where everybody's going and what you're capable of, you can get through anything. You can get through anything. You can get through anything. You know, that's why it's so important to have parental guidance. Unfortunately, that that's one of the things that I think is lacking in a lot of communities in this city. We don't have enough of that strong, positive parental guidance. That's why other people have to take up the slack and push people. Uh, I do that at the university. You know, I've, I've mentored a lot of students who have come through the university through their struggles and through their uh, hopes and dreams and, and try to give them positive reinforcement, positive feedback, tough love in some uh, instances to say that you need to, don't make any excuses here. There are no excuses. You get the job done. You can get the job done. Uh, you can graduate and you can go out there and get a decent job. So don't, don't accept any excuses. Just do it. Can initiatives, can programs, can organizations, can mentors, can they create an impact and provide that security the way the family can? Or is it never going to be as good as what the family could be, and it's, but it's better than nothing? It's better than nothing. Uh, I don't think it will be the ideal is for the family to do it because the family is, is with you all the time. The family has the most impact on your life because they see you all the time, morning, noon, and night. They know where you came from. They know what you're capable of doing. Uh, and they are the ones that can impact you from the, you know, from your infancy. You know, organizations, they may pick you up when you're, or they may come into your life at various stages of your life, you know, maybe, maybe at kindergarten, or maybe at uh, fifth grade, or maybe in high school. Well, you can only do so much there. But when you are there from the very beginning, when you open your eyes and the first people you see and recognize, that's your family, or it should be. And they are the ones who impact you. And living out on a farm, we didn't come in contact with anybody else, especially when school was out. So we only had each other. We worked together. We worked the fields together. We, we milked the cows together. Yeah. We ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. We watched TV together. We went to church together. And so, again, it was only when school was in session or when we got to go to town on Saturdays to see people on the streets of Como was when we saw other people. The rest of the time, it was just the family. And so, yeah, it's better than nothing to get organizations and groups and and other outside mentors to help, but it can never 
place the family. I saw on the Daily Memphian site you had about 180 to 200 articles that you had written, and I read about 25 of them. So, and, and I tried to do them from different years. So, okay. I'm, what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to at least tell the truth that I'm not trying to be biased uh, about questions that I ask. And if I come across that way, I hope you tell me. Oh, you don't. You okay. don't. But I read when you, you wrote a piece about Phil Trenary mm. when he was murdered. Yeah. But you wrote about his work for the city and his work for the chamber, but his ability to cross racial lines. That's a direct quote. Yes. You know, I'd already written this out to ask you about this before, but then when you were talking about Governor Haslam, it made me think about it as well. So I'm curious, with Phil Trenary, what did you see the way that he did business, or what did you see the way that he would cross racial lines, as you said, political lines, whatever that might look like, to do good work from how you see it from your perspective? Can you talk about how you saw him go about doing the job? I saw him getting involved in various initiatives in the city, whether it was business initiatives, whether it was social concerns, whether it was just sitting down and listening to people who had their own concerns about where this community was going. I saw him do that. Again, Phil, I didn't, he wasn't a close friend of mine. I just observed him from afar. And so what I saw was a guy who, who really, really cared about improving things in this community, being a part of, of causes and initiatives that were aimed at helping to lift up the entire community. And I just thought that the way he was killed was so... It, it went against everything that he was striving to, to achieve in terms of, of, of helping people. I remember that column because I, I, I remember how I started it. I looked at the video of him walking down the street. I, I learned about that video from Henry Turley. And I think he even had the video because it was from a camera from one of his developments downtown. And it saw it had Phil just walking down the street on his cell phone. And I don't have the column in front of me, but I, I do remember saying, I, I just wonder what he was thinking about. What was he talking about in the last five or less minutes of his life? And I supposed that he was talking to somebody about how to make Memphis better because that's what he always did. Uh, and everything that I knew about him, that's what he did. So that's how I framed that column. I thought it was a heinous crime and the people who perpetrated the crime needed to face the punishment for what they did. But it, it took a life that was a life that meant something in this community to help people. And that's how I couched that column. Do you feel like I'm seeing it right by seeing similarities in how you describe Governor Haslam and Phil Trenary? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they, they were certainly at, on different planes. Uh, uh, Phil wasn't that much of a politician. Phil was a businessman who, who, who did what he did through that, through that lens. 
and Haslam was a politician. Um, you know, that's how he was able to get to where he got. But both of them cared. That's the deal here, Sam. And it, as long as you care, uh, whether you're a journalist, whether you are a business leader, whether you're a political elected official, whether you're a school teacher, a small business owner, whether you are a funeral director, whatever you are, yeah. a beautician, whatever. As long as you care and you try to do things to help others, be a public servant, that's what's important. And I saw that in Haslam. I saw that in Phil Trenary. I see that in a lot of different people in this community, and I try to point them out whenever I possibly can. I see that in a, a woman who was the... Uh, interim president over at Lamorne Owen College, Carol Johnson, former superintendent of Memphis City Schools. She cares and has devoted her life to caring. So I, I like to point out those people in my columns, even as I criticize others in my column. Yeah. Were you a good editor when you were the managing editor? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would like to think so. <laughs> there was an interview one time I listened to of Walter Isaacson. Uh -huh. And I guess he was the editor of Time, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think he talked about not being a good editor. <laughs> mm, really? Yeah. And he just talked about the difference between when you're doing the work, and but then when you're responsible for the overall organization, production, et cetera. Mm. I mean, obviously, I'm not looking at data here, but this is going off a previous interview that I heard of him, but I was just curious what that was like for you when you started out, you know, in Jackson, you know, Memphis, and then what that transition was like, and if you enjoyed it, and if you thought you were good at it, or if you're better just being a journalist. Well, I, I, I said early on when I became an editor, because I started at the lowest level of being an editor, I kept saying that I'm a reporter on loan as an editor, because <laughs> I always considered myself a reporter. But the higher I got as an editor, starting out as an assistant metro editor and then, then going to Pittsburgh as an assistant city editor and then going to Detroit as a deputy city editor, it was higher responsibility at every level. And then came back to Memphis. I was deputy managing editor and then became managing editor. I, I think I got good at it. And people will say this about me. I got good at it because I was able to stay calm. You know, this is a hectic business. And when you're on deadline and you're covering major breaking stories and when there's craziness going on, maybe the presses are broke down or, you know, something's going wrong in the newsroom or, or you know, chaos is all around. I'm the one who keeps calm because I, I don't fly off the handle very often. And so I think my reporters knew that about me. I could always be the one in a news meeting to sort of rationalize and think through what we're going to do. And if I'm running a major story and I've ran and, and edited many major stories, especially in Detroit, there's so many big stories in Detroit. And I was able to get the reporters where they needed to be. I'll give you one quick example. I had a story in Detroit once, and Detroit had a lot of crime, but there was a story where a woman went to an ATM to get money out to have a birthday for her young child. And there were three young men 
the youngest was 10 years old, who were laying in wait for her to go to the ATM. They were going to rob her. And they used the 10-year-old as the one to the lookout to signal the others when somebody that they felt that they could rob would show up at the ATM. And they picked this woman who was giving money for her child's birthday. And they attacked her. They shot her and killed her at the ATM. It was the kind of story that we, you know, they have a lot of crime stories in Detroit. And we were trying to figure out how to cover the story and give some meaning to it. And so I had three reporters on the story. And I told one reporter, I want you to find out all you can find out about this woman and her family and what she was doing that led her to that ATM. And I told these other two reporters, you go and find out all you can find out about these three men. Two of them were teenagers, and then the youngest was 10. And what I wanted to do was build a story around what led up to them coming together at that ATM on that particular time at that moment. That's the story I wanted to tell. And they went off and did all of their reporting. And they came back and they wrote what they had. But somebody had to put it together. Yeah. To make it flow as a narrative. You see what I'm saying? Come up with that lead. Remember I told you about the lead earlier? Right. Uh, and then take that lead and then build that from the story. Well, I wanted to tell the story of what led up to all these people meeting up at this ATM and the tragedy that came out of it. And so as the editor, once I got everything that they had did, uh, had reported and wrote, I turned around and basically rewrote the story and put a lead on it and incorporated everything that they had reported to tell the story that I wanted to tell. And I think that was probably the best editing job I'd ever done on any story in my life. And that took me from there to even higher levels of editing where I you know, set the tone and set the direction of the newsroom and not have to do any specific line editing like I did on that. But again, I, I think my editing skills are, are around the fact that I'm I'm pretty calm and I can sit back and make rational decisions about how this operation should run. Up to this point, what's your favorite story that you've done that you're most proud of? As a reporter, so many of them. The biggest story I ever uh, worked on as a reporter was covering Elvis Presley's death. Yeah. Because that one was the worldwide story and and every year, people still buy the copy of that souvenir edition with my byline on the front page. So that's the biggest story. It wasn't the best story I ever did. Do you get a dividend for that? I get nothing from that. <laughs> <laughs> I get nothing from that. Um, I would say two things, and they're kind of personal. As a reporter or as a writer, I go back to that Barack Obama inauguration. I think that was just such a, a momentous day and how I wrote that as a column. That's one of my favorites. But the other one that's my favorite is um, I wrote, my mother lived to be 100 years old. Wow. And when we, we had a birthday party for her when she was 100, she was still great at 100. I mean, she was still active and 
That's awesome. And uh, she was still fine. Oh, it is awesome. Well, I was a columnist still at that time. And I, I asked the editor of the paper, he says, I want to write a column about my mother is 100 years old. Are you interested in that? And he says, hell yes, I'm interested in that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wrote a column about my mother and captured her life, talked about what was going on when she was born in 1910 and what she lived through. And I interviewed her. That was the most gratifying and satisfying thing that I ever wrote as a writer. Yeah. Is that it still is to this day. Uh, I would say that um, as an editor, I think the biggest story I was involved in as an editor uh, was covering 9-11. I was an editor at that point and sort of helped to run that coverage. And then uh, when I was in Detroit, it's a crazy story, but it's still one of my favorites. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a couple of figure skaters, uh, Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding. You ever heard of them? Yes, sir. Well, in 1994, they had the U.S. Figure Skating Championships in Detroit, right down the street from the paper where I worked. And that was when um, Tanya Harding's husband and a couple of goons attacked Nancy Kerrigan and whacked her on the knee. What? And, and, and got her out of the competition. Oh, yeah. I mean, you talk about it. They were going to the Olympics now. And it wound up being Tanya Harding's husband and two of his buddies that did it. <laughs> it, was, it was the craziest story. And, well, I was the editor in charge of the police department uh, reporters at that time. And so they, they told me, Otis, you run this story. You, you control this. And then do what you need to do. <laughs> if, you need, if you need to send people to Portland where Tanya was, send people to Portland. And I did. <laughs> I sent a reporter to Portland. He stayed out there about two weeks oh, wow. doing reporting from there. I had reporters in Detroit who were covering the police angle and covering Nancy. And I mean, oh, I, it was the best story I ever worked on in my life. That is so funny. Oh, it's sad. It's not, I mean, I feel bad saying it was funny, but it's it was just... funny. It was funny, Sam. So they were competing with each other. Or they were partners. Yeah, they, no, they were competitors. And, and Tanya and her husband, they wanted to to get rid of her as yeah. the best way for Tanya to win, to go to the Olympics. Olympics. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, both of them wound up going to the Olympics and we even sent somebody to the Olympics to cover that. I mean, it was just, it was the best story I ever <laughs> been in charge of. Did her husband and his pals, did they have to serve any time? Yeah. All three of them got arrested, got charged. I had left Detroit by the time of the, the case was over. So, cause I left at the end of, uh, 94. So I don't, I don't remember all the details, but oh yeah, they, they, they got caught. They had to go serve some time. They never could prove that Tanya had direct involvement. She denied that she had direct involvement. Although she, she knew that they were going to do, she first denied she knew anything about it at all, but she had to admit that, uh, yeah, she knew a little bit about it, but she didn't know that they were going to do what they were going to do. Yeah. Just dodged it. Yeah. That's bizarre. I mean, I've heard their names, but I just, I never knew that story. And It's an unbelievable story. And and I was right in the middle of it. And I... Leading the charge. <laughs> yeah. Curious, early, we kind of jumped into it early on, but we were talking about how things have changed and how fast they're changing. What are you teaching or what are you preparing for over the next 10, 20 years about how news will be consumed, how things will continue to play out with how we receive it and how that affects 
journalism, how that affects publications, et cetera? Well, over the next 10, 20 years, Sam, I, I plan to be retired and sitting in a rocking chair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> around you. a long time. <laughs> but but let, I'll try to be a, very succinct with this. The way I see it is that I used to tell my students and everybody else that I would talk to, I used to say that the printed newspaper would still be around during my lifetime. I have stopped telling people that because I don't, I don't think it will. What I see going forward is better delivery of electronic news because we, we, we use the cell phone for everything that we do now. And I, I don't think that's going to change. And so we need to make sure that everybody who wants to do journalism understands how to deliver content, again, the way people want to get their content. And that's through these devices that we all have. People still like to watch television. And young people say they don't watch much television news, but as they grow older, they will, they will watch television news. Television news is never gonna go away because people like seeing stuff on television. And so you need to be a good presenter of the news and content on television. It's a different formula from writing a news article for print because you have to, you have to project, you have to uh, shorter sentences, you have to, but your facial expressions count the way you carry yourself on TV, the believability, even your voice uh, has to be strong and convincing. Uh, and so I teach that too. And I, and I want students to understand how to use all of these mediums, social media, broadcast, uh, television, and radio, and traditional news websites to tell stories. And that's what's going to carry us through the rest of the the, you know, in the next 20 years. I don't see it changing too much from that over the next 20 years. And I saw where, I guess, since 2008, there's 50% less of journalists working for companies around the country. Is that a true statistic? Mm, yeah. Oh, well, certainly uh, it has shrunk uh, from what it used to be. And I think 50% is, uh, uh, I think that's accurate. Here in Memphis, it's even higher than that. Uh, when I came back to the, to Memphis from Detroit at the Commercial Appeal, we had two almost 220 people just in the newsroom. Now they have maybe 35. And again, we don't do the things I said earlier on. They don't do any of the things that the newspaper was known for in the 60s and 70s and 80s. They don't have the, the bodies to do it. So, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's going to continue to shrink. But the, but the demand for news, the demand for information is going to continue to grow. So that's why we have to do it quickly and easily, but also be comprehensive and do the kind of investigations that uh, only journalists can do. What is it about teaching? You said that's your second love or second passion. Just the idea that, um, well, first of all, that I have enough knowledge uh, to impart to somebody and that they would want to, that they could find it useful. I like that. I like to share the experiences I've had of 45 years of professional journalism. I like the idea of when somebody gets it uh, and understands what it takes to do what I've been doing all this time and enjoy doing it. 
And so I just like the whole idea of sharing and helping somebody who's really interested. Now, if you're not interested, then I don't really have a whole lot of time for you, uh, especially at the college level, because we don't have time for anybody who's really not that serious about trying to do the job. But if you are serious and I can help you, then I enjoy that. Are you encouraged where things are at today here in the town that you've been in most of your career or are you not encouraged? Can you elaborate on how you see things now where they are after spending close to 50 years starting here almost 50 years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and Memphis is, I've been in and around Memphis pretty much all of my life, except for maybe seven and a half years. I would say that I'm somewhat encouraged. Memphis still has a lot of challenges, has a lot of issues that it has to solve, but I'm somewhat encouraged. I I think that we have great potential as long as we can get past this pandemic uh, and come out the other end, I think we will be okay in terms of our economy where we are situated in the country. Uh, I think uh, the fact that we're a distribution hub will continue to be uh, our strong point. I think we have to continue to take advantage of, uh, of our strengths, which is, you know, we need to play up our, our musical heritage a lot more. We need to um, build on our diversity. Uh, we definitely need to get better when it comes to educational system. But I, I, I'm, I would say, somewhat optimistic about the future of Memphis. Thank you so much. Appreciate you spending time this afternoon, and it's been wonderful to meet you, and it's been wonderful to understand your work and how it all came to be. And uh, just really appreciate you spending time with me, and I can't wait for this to get out. Well, thank you, Sam. I appreciate you asking me, first of all, and I've enjoyed the conversation. I generally don't talk about myself as much as I've done today with you. But um, I appreciate the opportunity to share uh, with you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Yes, sir. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. Also, please subscribe to the show, follow me on social, and join me on this curiosity-fueled journey so that you can feel that same sense of purpose and see the opportunities that are right for you. All of this at drivenbypodcast.com. See you next time on the Driven By Podcast.